This is Luther's work, Slinker Edition, Volume 14. We're part way into this sermon, and it's about the ten lepers. We're on paragraph 10. But before this, it was telling about this great faith of these lepers, and how we also should have such a faith to receive anything of God. And that was all on the last tape, tape number one. This is tape number two. Now, he says, the second characteristic of faith is that it does not desire to know nor first to be assured whether it is worthy of grace and will be heard like the doubters who grasp after God and tempt him. Just as a blind man runs against a wall, so they also plunge against God and would first gladly feel and be assured that he cannot escape out of their hands. The epistle to the Hebrews says in 11.1, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This clearly means faith holds fast to what it does not see feel or experience, either in body or soul. But as it has firm trust in God, it commits itself to and relies upon it without any doubt, but its hope will be realized. But that its hope will be realized, thus it will also certainly be realized, and the feeling and experience will come to it unsought and unsolicited even in and through such hope or faith. Tell me, who had given these lepers a letter and seal that Christ would hear them? Where is there any experience and feeling of his grace? Where is the information, knowledge, or certainty of his goodness? Nothing of the kind is here. What then is here? A free resignation and joyful venture on him, on his imperceptible, untried, and unknown goodness. Here, there is no trace in which they might discover what they would, what he would do. But his mere goodness alone is kept in view, which fills them with such courage and venture to believe that he would not forsake them. Whence, however, did they receive such knowledge of his goodness? For well, they must have known it before, be they ever so inexperienced and insensible of it, as personal experience goes. Without doubt from the good reports and words they had heard about him, which they had never yet experienced. For God's goodness must be proclaimed through his word, thus we must build upon it untried and inexperienced as well or as will hereafter appear. The third characteristic of faith is that it allows of no merit, will not purchase the grace of God with works, like the doubters and hypocrites do, but brings with it pure unworthiness, clings to and depends wholly on the mere unmerited favor of God, for faith will not tolerate works and merit in its company, so entirely does it surrender, venture, and raise itself into the goodness for which it hopes, that for its sake it cannot consider either good works or merit. 
Yea, it sees that this goodness is so great that all good works compared with it are nothing but sin. Therefore it finds only unworthiness in itself, that is, that it is more worthy of wrath than of grace, and it does this without any dissimulation. For he sees how in reality and in truth it cannot be otherwise. These lepers here prove this clearly, who hope for the grace of Christ without the least merit. What good had they ever done to him before? They had never seen him. How then could they have served him? Besides, they were lepers whom he could justly have avoided according to the law in Leviticus 13 and kept himself free from them as was just and right. For in reality and truth, there was unworthiness and reason why he should have nothing to do with them, why he should have nothing to do with them, nor they with him. For this cause they also stand far off, like those who well knew their unworthiness. Thus faith also stands far from God, and yet it goes to meet him and cries out, for it knows itself in the reality of truth to be unworthy of his goodness and has nothing on which to depend except his highly renowned and loudly praised goodness. And such a soul also seeks Christ's favor while it stands afar off and is empty, for it cannot in the least tolerate in its company our merit and work and comes freely like Christ into this village to the lepers, in order that its praise may be free and pure. This favor of Christ he's talking about comes freely, like Christ, into this village to the lepers, in order that its praise may be free and pure. Free and pure. Observe how everything agrees perfectly that God's love gives its favor freely, does not take or seek anything for it, and how faith also receives quite freely and pays nothing for it. And thus the rich and the poor meet together, as the psalmist says. To this their words also testify when they say, Have mercy on us. He who seeks mercy, of course, neither buys nor sells anything, but seeks pure grace and mercy, as one unworthy of it, and evidently having greatly deserved the contrary. Behold, here is a good, real, living, and true example of Christian faith that sufficiently teaches us how we must be disposed if we would find grace, piety, and salvation. Now, in addition to this doctrine follows the incentive or inducement to faith that we should gladly believe as we are at present taught to believe. This incentive, however, consists in that we observe how such faith never fails, that as it believes, so it comes to pass, and that it is certainly heard and answered. For Luke describes how graciously and willingly Christ beheld and heard the weapons, and he says, And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go and show yourselves unto the priests. 
How very friendly and lovingly the Lord invites all hearts to himself in this example and stirs them to believe in him. For there is no doubt that he desires to do for all what he here does for these lepers. We only freely surrender ourselves to him for all his favor and grace. Just as true faith and a Christian heart should do and delight to do, so these lepers also do and teach us to do. For how earnestly the Lord desires that we should joyfully and freely venture to build on his favor before we experience or feel it. He has here sufficiently testified that he hears them willingly without any hesitation, that he does not first say he will do it, but as though it were already done, he did as they wished. For he does not say, Yes, I will have mercy on you, ye shall be cleansed. But he merely says, Go and show yourselves unto the priests, as though he would say, There is no use of asking, your faith has already acquired and obtained it. Before you began to ask, you were already cleansed in my sight, when you began to expect such things of me. It's no longer necessary. Now only go and show yourself or show your purity to the priests, as I consider you and as you believe, so you are and shall be. For he would not have sent them to the priests if he had not considered them clean. And so he wished to deal thus with them as those who had become cleansed already. Behold, so powerful is faith to obtain all at once of God, that God considers it done before the asking. Of this Isaiah says in 65:24, And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Not as though faith or we were worthy of it, but in order that he might show his unspeakable goodness and willing grace, thereby to stir us to believe in him, and comfortingly look to him for every good thing with joyful and unwavering consciences, which do not stumble after him nor tempt him. So now you also see that Christ hears these lepers before they call, and before they cry out, he is prepared to do all their heart's desire, Go, he says, I will not add a word, for it has succeeded in your case further. No promise or consent is necessary. Take what you ask and go. Are not these strong incentives that make the heart joyful and eager? Behold, then, his grace permits itself to be felt and grasped. Yea, it grasps and satisfies us. Yea, it grasps, satisfies us. This has been said now on the first part, namely faith. Now we must also examine the other part of this example of the nature of Christianity, love. The lepers have instructed us how to believe. Christ teaches us to love. The lepers have instructed us how to believe. Christ teaches us love. Love does to our neighbor as it sees Christ has done to us, as he says in John 13:15. For I have given you an example that ye also should do as I have done to you. 
And immediately afterwards, he says in verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you, ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. What else does this mean, then, to say, Through me in faith you now have everything that I am and have. I am your own, you are now rich and satisfied through me. For all I do in love, I do in love not for my, but only for your sake. And I only ask how to be useful and helpful to you and accomplish whatever you need and should have. Therefore, consider this example to do to each other as I have done to you, and only consider how to be useful to your neighbor and do what is useful and necessary for him. Your faith has enough in my love and grace, so your love shall also give enough to others. Just go do it. I'm the one that furnishes everything you have anyway. Behold, this is a Christian life, and in brief, it does not need much doctrine nor many books. It's wholly contained in faith and love. Thus also St. Paul in Galatians 6.2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And to the Philippians in 2.4 he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And there he gives us Christ as an example. And we can read on here, he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and so forth. Now Luther says, Who, although he was true God, yet became our servant, and served us, and died a scandalous death for us. This Christian free and joyful life has the evil spirit as its enemy, who with nothing else does such great injury as with the doctrines of men, as we shall hear. For truly the manner of a Christian's life is briefly marked out in the words, Have a good heart toward God and a good will toward your fellow man. Here it consists entirely within us. His good heart and faith naturally teach him how to pray. Yea, what is such faith but pure prayer? It continually looks for divine grace, and if it looks for it, it also desires it with all the heart. And this desire is really the true prayer that Christ teaches and God requires, which also obtains and accomplishes all things. And because it does not trust or seek comfort in self, its works or worthiness, but builds upon God's pure grace, therefore whatever he believes, desires, hopes, and praise also comes to pass, so that the holy prophet, 
Zechariah justly calls the spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication, where he says, God, where God says in Zechariah 12.10, quote, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Because faith recognizes and desires God's favor without any intermission. Again, love naturally teaches him how to do good works, for they alone are good works which serve your neighbor and are good. Yea, what is such love but only good deeds continually shown toward your neighbor, so that our work is called love, our faith is called prayer. Thus Christ speaks in John 15:12 and 13. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. As though he would say, So completely have I done all my works for your benefit, that I also gave my life for you, which is the greatest of all love, that is, the greatest work of love, if I had known a greater love, I would have manifested it to and for you. Therefore you should also love each other and do all good deeds to one another. I require no more of you. I do not say you are to build me churches, make pilgrimages, fast, sing, become monks or priests, or that you are to enter into this order or rank. But you do my will and serve when you do good to each other and no one cares for himself but for others. On this all entirely depends. And these he calls friends. By this he does not mean that we should not love our enemies, for he says clearly, who lays down his life for his friends, his friends are more than mere friends. It may come to pass that you are my friend, and yet I am not your friend. Or I may love you and receive you as a friend and offer you my friendship, and yet you hate me and remain my enemy. Just as Christ says to Judas in the garden, Friend, do that for which thou art come. Judas was his friend, but Christ was Judas's enemy. For Judas considered him his enemy and hated him. Christ loved Judas and esteemed him as his friend. It must be a free, perfect love and kindness toward every one. It must be a free, perfect love and kindness toward everyone. See, this is what James means when he says in 2.26, Faith without works is dead. For as the body without the soul is dead, so is faith without works. Not that faith is in man and does not work. That would be impossible. For faith is a living, active thing. But in order that men may not deceive themselves and think that they have faith when they don't, they are to examine their works, whether they also love their neighbors and do good to them. If they do this, then it's a sign that they have the true faith. If they do not do this, they only have the sound of faith, and it is with them as the one who sees himself in the mirror.
And when he leaves it, he sees himself no more, but sees other things and forgets the face in the glass or the mirror, as James says in his first chapter. Uh, in bracket says here, this passage in James, deceivers and blind masters have spun out so far that they have demolished faith and established only works as though righteousness and salvation did not rest on faith but on our works. To this great darkness they afterwards added still more and taught only good works which are of no benefit even to our neighbor, such as fasting, repeating many prayers, observing festival days, not to eat butter and meat, honey and eggs, and to build churches, cloisters, chapels, and altars to institute masses and vigils and hours. I don't know where I got this honey in here. It didn't say honey. Honey comes with butter, I guess. Uh, to wear gray, white, black clothes, to be spiritual and innumerable things of the same kind from which no man has any benefit or enjoyment, all which God condemns and that justly but St. James means that a Christian life is nothing but faith and love. Love is only being kind and useful to all men. Love is only being kind and useful to all men, to friends and enemies. And where faith is right, it also certainly loves and does to another in love as Christ did to him in faith. Thus everyone should beware, lest he has in his heart a dream and a fancy instead of faith, and thus deceives himself. Now this he will not learn anywhere as well as in doing the works of love to his neighbor. As Christ also gives the same sign, and he says in John 13:35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Therefore, St. James means to say, Beware of your life, beware if your life is not the service of others, or in the service of others, and you live for yourself and care nothing for your neighbor, then your faith is certainly nothing, for it doesn't do what Christ has done for him. Yea, he does not believe that person that Christ has done good to him, or he would not omit to do good to his neighbor. This St. Paul also requires in 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. This explains the whole matter, not that faith is insufficient to make us pious, but that a Christian life must embrace and never separate these two, faith and love. But the presumptuous undertake to separate them. They want only to believe and not to love. They despise their neighbor and yet pretend to have Christ. This is false, and it will and must fail. Thus we say, too, that faith is everything, and it saves us, that a man needs no more for his salvation. Yet he is on this account not idle, but labors much. All, however, for the benefit of his neighbor, not for himself. He does not need it. He has enough in Christ. And, of course, that's what the 
Ten Commandments teach, love to your neighbor. If, however, he does not do this, he's certainly not right. And this his work, and this his work is his love. But the blind guides want to teach that works are necessary, that the worker needs them for his salvation. This is a chief perversion, the heir of all heirs. For by this they destroy both faith and love, the entire Christian nature and example. They take the work from the neighbor and they give it to the person himself, doing it as though he needed it. Here faith cannot live, for he knows that his work is not necessary and helpful for himself, but only for his neighbor. Thus they are opposed to each other. Faith casts the works from itself on the neighbor through love. But these blind teachers tear them from the neighbor and apply them to their own persons, and thus choke and dampen both love and faith, and cause a man only to love himself, and to seek only his own salvation and trust in his own works. From this evil must follow dull consciences and much self-chosen work, building churches, much praying, the saints fasting and the like, which are beneficial to no one. All misery and misfortune must follow, as is at present evident in the cloisters, monasteries, and high schools. Now that was just a little diversion from the main topic. And that's the end of that. That was all in brackets about what James says. A man forgetting his looks, what he's like, when he leaves the glass, man that only has faith but don't have work. Now, let us observe the works of the love of Christ in this example of the ten lepers. But what is in Christ besides pure love? Everyone can easily find out for himself. First, why is it necessary for him to travel between Samaria and Galilee? Or who paid him anything for doing this? Or who requested him to do so? Is it not manifest that he does all this freely, willingly, without receiving anything for it, and comes of himself uninvited? that no one can say that he deserved such a visitation or acquired it by prayer. Thus we see here that he does nothing whatever for himself or for his own sake, but all for the sake of others, unrequested and altogether freely out of mere grace and love. In like manner that he had just gone into this village, why did he need to do this? Who asked him to do so? Who paid him anything for it? Is it not true that he came before any merit was possible, any prayer could be said, and offered his love and kindness freely and gratuitously, and seeks nothing of his own in it, but only serves others thereby, so that he might draw all hearts unto himself, and that they might believe in him? Behold, such virtue has love, that it does only good, and lives for the benefit of others, seeks nothing with selfish motives, does all freely and gratuitously, surprises everyone. 
Such life and work you must observe and direct. Such life and work you must observe and direct your life accordingly if you would be a Christian and banish all such works and power from your view that are not of this nature. Even if they be so great as to remove mountains, like the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Note in the second place how Christ does good without harm to others, yea, by preventing harm to others. For there are some who do good in a way that is harmful to others, as the proverb runs. They offer Our Lady a penny and steal her horse. So they who give alms from ill-gotten goods, as Christ says in Isaiah 61, 8. I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. Of this nature are nearly all the monasteries and cloisters that devour the sweat and blood of the people and then pay God with masses, vigils, rosaries, or monasteries and holidays, at times they also give an alms. This is to love with the goods of others and to serve God in prosperous days and in the fullness of wealth, with an all-sufficiency. This disgraceful well-doing is indeed a far-reaching plague, but here Christ does no one harm, but prevents injury rather and directs the lepers to the priests that they may be deprived of none of their rights. Thus he bestows his kind deeds upon the lepers as though he went into this village for this purpose. He looks upon them graciously and willingly and gladly helps them. Besides, he thereby also prevents any disadvantage to the priests, although he is under no obligation to them. For as he cleansed the lepers in a supernatural manner without the priest doing anything, he was indeed not obliged to direct them to them, and could say, Inasmuch as you have not performed your office toward these according to the law, therefore you should also not have the emoluments of the office, which is just and right. But love does not look on what is right, nor does it contend. It's present only to do good, and so it does even more than it is obliged to do, and goes beyond what is right. Therefore, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1, that among Christians there should be no lawsuits at court, because love does not seek or demand its rights, nor cares anything for them, but is bent only on doing good. Although he says at another place in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Thus are truly the learned of our day who teach much about rights, which is only unchristian and opposed to love. I do not speak of those who are forced to contend for their rights, or as right is preferred by some unchristian people, these must be present and defend the right so that nothing worse occurs. 
It's not Christian to hang or to crush under the wheel, but in order to restrain murder, such things must also be done. It is not Christian to eat and to drink. Nevertheless, man is compelled to do both. These are all necessary works which do not concern the inner nature of Christianity. A person should not be satisfied in doing them as though the doing of them made a Christian made them a Christian. The work in the married state is not distinctively Christian, yet it's necessary to avoid evil. And other examples could be given. Now, thirdly, Christ shows that love is still greater in that he exercises it where it is lost and receives ingratitude from the majority. Ten lepers were cleansed, and only one thanks him. On the nine his love is lost. If we would have made use of justice here instead of love, as men are accustomed to do, and nature teaches, he would have made them all lepers again. But he lets them go and enjoy his love and kind deed, although they return to him enmity instead of thanks. Nor did he prevent the priests from enjoying their own, but gave them their honor and rights, although without any need and obligation to do so. And the priests thanked Christ by alienating from him the lepers, so that they believed that Christ did not cleanse them, but their offering and obedience to the law did it. And thus they destroy the faith in the lepers and cause Christ to be despised and hated by them as though he had taken to himself an office that did not belong to him. That the priests had examined these lepers, one may readily believe, and this the text also suggests. Therefore they must have trumpeted into these lepers many wicked words against Christ, and highly praised the works and offerings of the law, so that they might root out of them their great and noble faith, establish themselves in place of Christ in their heart. And the lepers accepted this and regarded Christ as the priests told them, so that they became his enemies and ascribed their purification to God as obtained by virtue of their offerings and merit and not by Christ and his pure grace. While they were thus released from bodily leprosy, they thereby fell into spiritual leprosy, which is a thousand times worse. But Christ permits both parties to go and enjoy his goodness he is silent about his rights. He receives hatred and displeasure for praise and thanks, that we may hereby learn how we often pray, and that it were better for us if our prayers were not answered. It would have been better for these lepers if they had remained unclean than that by their bodily cleansing they should become diseased with a more dangerous spiritual leprosy. So, let's repeat that again. Isn't that something? It would have been better for these lepers if they had remained unclean than that by their bodily cleansing they should become diseased with a more dangerous spiritual leprosy. So may God be thanked that he doesn't answer our prayers in our natural troubles every time and what we think is a need for ourselves. 
Now, Luther says, study this example and incite your life so that you may do your good works not only without harm to others but also to their advantage, not only to friends and the good, but consider that the greater portion will be lost that you will receive in gratitude and hatred as your reward. Then you will walk the right road in the footprints of Christ your Lord. Until you have accomplished this, you should not regard yourself a true, perfect Christian. It matters not whether you wear ten hairy shirts, and whether you fast every day or celebrate Mass every day, pray the Psalter, make pilgrimages, establish churches or yearly festivals. For Christ wishes to have such works done, if they are done in the right spirit. Behold, this is truly a Christian life. But now you see whether Christ's works tend, therefore attend to this with all diligence, and view your own life aright. If you find a work of yours which you need, or you think you need, for your salvation, stamp it under your feet, guard yourself as in the presence of all the devils, and never rest until you are delivered from such a spirit or work. Strive that your life may be useful and serviceable, not to yourself, but only to your neighbor's need. Cursed be he who lives and works only for himself, for Christ did not wish to do his own will, nor live for himself. For your works, your own works, will certainly lead you away from love and faith. You have no other work that is necessary and useful for your salvation, and to believe, and daily then to exercise yourself in this faith. See to it that you continue steadfast in it, and not allow the priests to deprive you of it, as they did these nine lepers. For they have slick tongues and a beautiful color. Only let all other works go in one bundle, be they lost or well applied. Let that not trouble you. You just remain in the faith that Christ gives you. Here you have many times enough and in love which gives you to your neighbor, and you will have enough to do for which you will find yourself many times deficient. Well, what you do in this is nothing, even if you should possess all the works of the saints put together. Hear what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, quote, and if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, if I give my body to be burned, but have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. It's not enough to help the poor and torment yourself. You must love your enemy, cast your goods with yourself, with yourself into the waste heap, and not choose one rather than another to whom to do good. Here you might say, Alas, what will now become of the spiritual orders, the priests and the monks and nuns and so forth? Are they of service to no one, and do they perform only their own works? Answer. Why did you, na why did you ask about priests and monks? Has Christ not ordered you to follow him, and not priests and monks? If their works are not done, in the sense before mentioned, that one should serve the other and cling to faith, one should serve the other and cling to faith, 
you are never to doubt that they are opposed to Christ and are as the foolish virgins with their empty dark lamps. For their sake another Christ will not come. Of this St. Peter prophesies in 2 Peter 2.1, There shall be false teachers among you. They will bring forth destructive sects. Let's read it in the King James Version. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Luther says, that is, spiritual orders and ranks in which souls will only be condemned. St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 11. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might be damned, they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In these words, the spiritual orders and ranks are set forth, how they are constituted and whence they come. For they pretend to be something extraordinary and better than other callings and stations in the Christian life, while they are farther from the Christian life than any other calling or any other people on the earth. They need more to bring them to the true Christian life and need more to bring them to the true Christian life. Some of these callings and their governments are well ordered, for they are a wife and child and subject who exercise and give occasion for love, and likewise insist that you must not live or work for yourself, but are compelled to work only for the good of others. If you only know the faith and really live according to it, you then have no work of your own, and you will have so much to do that you will be obliged to forget your own work. For in that you fast, labor, eat, drink, sleep, take a wife, in short, do everything for the needs of your body and estate, and estate, needs of your body and estate, is all done that you may live here and support the body in order that you may serve others. Behold, this is truly a Christian life. Therefore, St. Paul says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another, and in love to serve each other. From this you may know why all the world is full of spiritual orders, that is, dens of hell and murder. But no one knows any longer what a Christian life is not to mention that one should find an example of even find an example of it. This is all the fault of the Pope and his cursed law, which is which has given us God's wrath for our masters, as Saint Peter and Saint Paul have declared. This is enough on the first part of our gospel. Let us now examine the second part. And in bold print it says, a picture of the Christian character in its development and growth. And the evangelist says, And it came to pass as...
they went, they were cleansed. Thus far we've learned how faith works, its nature whence it comes, what its beginning is, what it brings, and how acceptable it is before God. All this is said of the beginning of a Christian life. But it's not enough to begin. We must increase and continue steadfast. For Christ says in Matthew 24, 13, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. Luke 9, 62, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Therefore, this second part treats of the increase and perfection of faith. The faith or confidence of the heart in God is a very tender and sensitive thing indeed, and it may very easily be injured, so that it begins to tremble in despair when it is scarcely yet exercised and established. And thus it has countless attacks and dangers from sin, from nature, from reason, self-conceit, from human doctrine, from the examples of the saints, and from devils. Now it's time to turn the tape over. In short, it is attacked without intermission from all sides, the Christian faith is, in front and in the rear, so that it trembles and despairs, or falls to trusting in good works. Hence St. Peter says truly in 1 Peter 4.18, the righteous is scarcely saved. Prophet Zechariah compares the righteous to a brand plucked from the fire, that he may not be entirely consumed. And Amos the prophet to a sheep's ear that the shepherd delivered from the jaws of the wolf. So malignantly temptations rage about a believing heart. Therefore, St. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10:12, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And in all places he teaches. How we should walk with watchfulness and fear, and always take good care of our faith. For as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, which are very easily broken if God does not preserve us. Therefore we should not be secure, but stand in the fear of God. And pray with Jeremiah 17, 17 that God might protect our faith and not permit us to tremble or be frightened in the presence of our faith. This gospel also sufficiently shows this danger by a terrible example, that among these ten lepers who believed, nine fell away, and in the end only one stands and continues steadfast. It is here as with a beautiful tree in full bloom, that we think cannot bear all its fruit for the abundance of blossoms. But later, so many are destroyed by storms. Then the fruit becomes worm-eaten and falls, that scarcely one-tenth of it ripens. And so, there are many who receive the word and begin to believe, but as Christ says in Matthew 13:10 to 
to 21 that the soil is stony and not deep enough, or the faith stands among the thorns and the thistles, that is, by reason of temptations and enticements, they fall and continue not steadfast, for as soon as things go wrong with them and God afflicts them a little, they forget his goodness and see only his anger. Hence faith vanishes, and there remains a wavering, discouraged, and frightened conscience that flees from God, not to mention that it should go to meet him, as indeed it did at first. Thus we see here that the lepers begin to believe and expected help from Christ, who then further awakens their faith and tries it, does not immediately make them well, but speaks a word to them to show themselves to the priests. If there had been no faith in them, their reason and natural fancy would have spoken thus and immediately murmured, What is this? We expected great kindness from him and heartily believed in him. He would help us, but now he doesn't touch us, as is his custom and as he did to others, but only looks at us and passes, passes on. Perhaps he despises us, besides he neither promises nor denies whether he will cleanse us or not, but leaves us in doubt, says no more than that we should show ourselves to the priest. Why should we show ourselves to them? They already know we're lepers. We see that nature would thus become angry and lukewarm against them, because he does not immediately do her bidding, and he does not with certainty tell what he will do. But here is faith that strengthens itself and only increases through such temptation and cares not how unkind or uncertain the actions and words of Christ sound, clings fast to his goodness and does not permit itself to be frightened away. And of a truth there was in them a strong, rich faith that upon his word they promptly went forth for... Have they doubted, they certainly would not have gone. And yet they had here no clear promise. Now that's a good beginning, huh? They did have faith, even though they might have faltered in their thoughts. They did have faith to go on. This is the method that God employs with us all to strengthen and to prove our faith. He treats us so that we know not what he will do with us. This he does for the reason that man is to commend himself to him and rely on his mere goodness, not doubt that he will give what we desire or something better. So also these lepers thought, Very well, we will go as he commands, and although he does not tell us whether he will cleanse us or not, this shall not influence us to esteem him any the less than before. Yea, we will also, we will only esteem him so much the more and higher. And joyfully wait, if he will not cleanse us, he will still do better for us than if we were cleansed. And we will not on that account despair of mercy and favor. Behold, this is a true increase of faith. Such trials continue as long as we live, therefore we must also continue to grow just as long. For when he tries us in one instance in which he makes us uncertain how he will treat us, 
He afterwards also, or always, takes another and continually enlarges our faith and confidence if we only remain unmovably steadfast. Behold, this is what St. Peter calls growing in grace and a knowledge of Christ. And then also in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. I notice the other version of Luther says, unto salvation. And also, St. Paul in all places desires that we should increase, continue, and become rich in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. This is nothing else than, in this manner, to become strong in faith. When God conceals his kindness and appears as Christ does here to the lepers, that we do not know what to expect of him. For faith must be an argument, not an appearance. And be certain, and not doubt in the things that are concealed and are not experienced. And that is, uh, check it out in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Therefore now observe that when God appears to be farthest away, then he is the nearest. This word of Christ reads as though we cannot know what he will do. He does not refuse, nor does he promise anything. So that the lepers, who previously certainly relied on his kindness for all things, might have become offended at it and begun to doubt and taken quite a different sense of it than Christ meant. Christ speaks it out of an overflowing kindness so that he thinks it unnecessary to tell them that they have already obtained what they want. But as the sense was not clear to them, they might have thought that he was entirely of a different opinion and farther from them than before. Thus are all his superabundant kindnesses, works, and words. This way are all his superabundant kindnesses, works, and words, that we may think that he was previously more kind and gracious than afterwards, when he first had anything to do with us. Thus it also happened to the people of Israel in the desert. They thought, God did not bring them out of Egypt, upon whom nevertheless they called, and they knew well while they were in Egypt that he helped them, or he would help them. But all this is done so that we may not remain in weakness when we first begin to believe, but grow and ever increase until we begin, or we be able to take the strong nourishment and become satisfied and full of the Spirit. We may not only despise and triumph over riches, honor, and friends, but also over death and hell. Hence it is with the faithless and unbelieving as with unfortunate mine workers. Workers in the mine who begin to prospect with great confidence and dig extensively, but when they are about to strike the treasure, which would have taken but a little more labor, they give up and look at what they did as in vain, and think there is nothing in it. Then comes another worthy of the task, who had never yet made a beginning, but he strikes away boldly, and he finds what the former hunted and dug for. He dug for him. 
Thus it is also with the grace of God. He who begins to believe will not continually grow and increase, but from him grace from him grace will be taken and given to another who begins with it. He too will not continue, it will be taken also from him and given to another. It only wants to be believed. And here our high schools speak holy, blind, mad, and poisonous things about faith when they teach that the beginning of faith is enough for salvation, is only a small degree or step from it. So these words of the text, and it came to pass as they went they were cleansed, would say, It is impossible for faith to fail. It must take place as it believes. Well, if these lepers had not believed and remained steadfast, of course, they would not have gone. Therefore, not for the sake of their going, but on account of their faith, they became cleansed, because of which they also went. Because of which they also went. All this I say in order that some blind teacher may not come to this text and stick his eyes into good works without seeing the faith and afterwards pretend that works make us acceptable and save us because these lepers went forth and thus became cleansed. This error must be opposed that one may rightly see the faith of these lepers. And thus it will appear that their work of going did not obtain, obtain the cleansing but faith did. So also the Lord opposes the same error in that he cleanses them before they accomplish the work assigned them. For he did not only command them to go, but to show themselves to the priests. Now they evidently became cleansed before they arrived at the priests and before they had finished the work. They had first become cleansed after they had arrived and brought the offering, then the priests might have, might have had ground for the pretense that they were cleansed by their offering and works, even as they did and misled the poor people. But they didn't have any ground for it. Now I've often said that works are twofold, some before and without faith, others come out of and after faith. For as little as nature without faith can be idle and inactive, so much less also can faith be idle. And as nature's works do not proceed or make nature, but nature must first be present and do the works out of and by virtue of herself, so also the works of faith do not make faith, but they follow and spring from faith. So there must be works, works of love to our neighbor, which are all two tables of the law, love to God and our neighbor, but they have no merit or saving power, but all salvation and merit must first be present in faith. This is also the reason that the works of faith are free and spontaneous and not premeditated. Well, these lepers were also free, and if Christ had commanded them to do something else, they would have done it. And if someone would have asked them whether they went in order to be cleansed, they would have replied no. And this would have been the case if the cleansing took place because of their works. Just as if you should ask the hypocrites whether they work in order to be saved, they would say yes. 
without works they would not want to be saved. But these lepers would not speak thus. They hope he will cleanse them out of pure kindness without considering their work of going, which they do only because he wills it to satisfy the law, although unnecessary. For all lepers might also go to the priests, and yet they would not on that account be cleansed, which nevertheless must be if the work were necessary and useful for the cleansing. Just as the work righteous person thinks, which work righteous persons think that he who works will be saved, so it must also be here, he who goes will be cleansed. But now as the cleansing took place only because of the presence of faith, in like manner salvation comes also on account of faith alone. But as the lepers must go, not for their own sakes, but for the sakes of the priests, that they might be satisfied, although they were not obliged to go to them, so all believers must work, not for their own sake, but for the sake of others to serve them, although they owe them nothing, but freely do good as Christ has done to them, about which enough has been said above in the first part. Now there follows further in the text, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. The returning of the one must have taken place after he and the others had shown themselves to the priests. But the evangelist is silent as to how they came to the priests and what took place there. However, from the return and thankfulness of this one, he gives us to understand how it went. He without doubt very unwillingly returned alone, for as with all his heart he thanks Christ and is kind to him. The conclusion is clear how he persevered, admonished, urged, prayed, and did his utmost for the others that they should go with him and acknowledge the great kindness. And no doubt it grieved him that he could not prevail upon the nine and had to leave them with tears and grief. All these and similar things force us to think of the love he had for Christ that leaves nothing unattempted, fears no one, regards no one, if they only worthily honor and praise Christ. What kind of a tempest visited the nine that they so firmly separated from the one. As we have heard, they all made a good beginning and grew in the faith of Christ. Of their own accord, they would not have fallen so completely. Someone must have first overthrown their faith so that the honor which they previously gave Christ so freely and honestly, they now divert from him and rob him of this honor, turn their friendship into enmity. Nor was it a weak falling away that so severely offends and opposes the one leper with all his admonitions and regrets. Behold, the priests did this. They could not bear that the honor be given to Christ. Hence, they no doubt preached a strong sermon against him to root out their faith. But what might they have said to them? Because they fought against Christ and the faith, it's easy to think what they said and did, namely, what is contrary to faith. 
That is, they herald into those poor lepers that they should not believe that Christ cleansed them, but should thank God who had regard in their offering and the prayers of the priests, and heard them, on this account cleansed them, and whatever else they said to draw away the hearts of the lepers. But the one leper did not permit himself to be drawn from Christ. He remained steadfast and overcame all the assaults of faith. Therefore, with two strong assaults, their hearts were changed. First, to cleanse one from leprosy is impossible for a creature, and it is certainly only the work of God. Therefore, it cannot be in any way attributed to Christ whom they saw and regarded as a man, and not as God. Therefore they should beware by no means to blaspheme God and make a God out of a mere creature. Oh, what a fine pretense and powerful stroke this was! What a great faith must be there to stand when it's opposed by God himself, by his honor and work with which one is threatened not to deny God. What heart does not think that it would be the very best to yield to a temptation like this? The next stroke was to bring forth the law of Moses, where it was commanded to hearken unto the priests at the risk of death, what they judged according to the law, and that's in Deuteronomy 17:12. As a priest here judged the cleansing was from God and not from Christ, they powerfully caught their consciences and crushed faith to powder in the nine, for to act against the law is also to act against God. Here observe what a terrible opposition this was, when bodily and eternal death is placed in opposition to the conscience, together with the anger of God and man, the highest and greatest sins, with the greatest punishment. What heart would not fall before such terrors, or never tremble, especially when the law of God is offered as a signal of truth? With this, these nine fell, and sooner denied ten Christ, ten Christ, than offend God and transgress his law, and thought that they will by, they did well by so doing. Then an ugly contention arose, first of all, concerning the one who alone stood opposed to the priests, while all his companions fall and join his opponents. Then they also exercised diligence, prayed, and threatened that he should by no man means offend God. Believe the priests, disbelieve the priests, nor despise the law of Moses, and beware that he be not put to death as a blasphemer. Here the poor child must be a fool or insensible, so good he has it, or a heretic and apostate. He has become cleansed, but he must on that account risk body and life, goods and honor, friends and companions, and besides had to allow them the name that they were pious did good and honored God, while he must be a sinner and dishonors God. And because he was a Samaritan, they esteemed him perhaps the less, and they thought, 
Let him go, he's but a Samaritan, a man lost and not of Israel. For they had mercy on him as a man mad and possessed. So you see, this is the last and greatest opposition to faith. But he who continues steadfast abides indeed forever. For here is overcome the fear of death and hell with all their terrors. In this world and in the world to come. Thus the name of God must at all times do the greatest evil and be a cover for the greatest scandal through its misuse by the devil and wicked men. Whereas they know that man does not fear and honor anything so much as God's name and glory, especially among good-hearted people, therefore they take just such a one and bring him to their mind that what they pretend is God, then the poor crowd follows that thinks nothing else than that a man must fear. Accept all this by which God's name or word is presented. Therefore, an intensive, extensive knowledge is necessary in such opposition that a man may not err, although he be threatened by the name of God. For idols have even assumed the name in honor of God. Thus the Pope always employs the name of God for every sin and shame. All his disciples and false teachers follow him. And especially the priests who pretend that their unchristian, unbelieving orders and works are divine and Christian. But it is yet harder when the evil spirit torments the conscience in the throes of death and pretends that God is angry and does not care for you. Of this David says in Psalm 3, 2, Many there be, or many there are, that say of my soul, There is no help for him in God. For as the Jews spoke to Christ while on the cross, He trusted on God. Let him deliver him now if he desireth him. For he said, I am the Son of God. As though they would say, it's impossible for God to help him. He's wholly lost. Or when God himself thus tries and forsakes a man so that he feels nothing else in his conscience than that God has forsaken him and will never welcome him. As David says in Psalm 31:23, I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. This also was a temptation for Abraham and Jacob, which you can read in Genesis 15 and also Genesis 32. Here faith suffers its greatest distress and is in the pangs of hell. Here it's necessary to hold fast and not suffer yourself to err when God himself is pictured before you. Behold, this is the last and greatest trial of faith. He who remains firm here abides firm forever, for here is overcome the fear of death and hell with all the terrors in this world and in the world to come. They are the strongest Christians and the greatest spirits who resist this temptation. Now all this I say so that we may learn to hold fast to faith which we have begun, and ever remain in the same firm conviction, 
remain in the same firm conviction that looks to God for every good and not permit ourselves to be driven or forced from it by man, the devil, sin, the law, the name of God, or God himself, which we will be able to do if we only abide in the true nature of faith, as St. Paul says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen, but not the substance of things fleeing away or the evidence of things seen. That is, the nature of faith is that it relies on the goodness of God and thinks of nothing else than to hope for and desire it. The contrary of this is to flee from it, which is terrible, and that's not an example of faith, but of assault and temptations. For God has not built our faith or good conscience or confidence on wrath, but on grace. Therefore, all his promises are lovely and gracious. On the contrary, his threats are terrible and bitter which we must also believe, but on his threats. Christian faith cannot build. It must have before it only that which is good. Secondly, man should possess assurance. The good for which faith looks and on which it depends must not be seen or experienced. Therefore, everything a person feels whether of pleasure or pain, he must know it's not that which he is to believe, but it's the opposition and temptation over which he must leap and jump. Close his eyes and all his senses and cling only to the good which he neither sees nor hears until the contention ceases. Just as Elijah wrapped his face in a mantle, when the great earthquake, wind, and fire passed by. Now that's beautiful. The blows and assaults against this leper were much greater. Besides, he was left alone. But he stood firm, so far as his faith greater and more perfect, and was quite ripe. Without doubt, it is an example for us that we too must not permit ourselves to be influenced by priests, and saints, even though the great crowd of all the world go with them. It was indeed a great sight that the priest withstood him, whose duty it was to teach other people the right way, and who should by rights have been the most learned. Here we learn a good answer for the Pope, the priests, and the wise, when they appear with their power government, office, and dignity, and pretend that we must believe them and only hear what they say, who know very well enough what it is when Christ directs the lepers to the priest, but appear as though they could not see how this lonely man, who was not a priest but a common layman, nor was he even an Israelite but a Samaritan, and yet he pronounces judgment on the priest's doctrine and opinion. It's more learned than they all put together. Or does he worry about being alone and the crowd being on their side? Now, if this had been sufficient, 
as our papists say, that they are the priests, the learned, the rulers, and the power, besides they have the multitude with them, and that a man should not oppose what the government, dignity, power, and multitude offer, then this Samaritan did what was not right. But God preserve us. Well, this gospel here teaches that scarcely no one is so accustomed to err and go astray as just these very priests, the clergy, the most learned, the rulers, the most dignified, and the greatest crowd. Wherefore, we are scarcely to avoid any one more than just these very ones. But since Christ directs the lepers to the priests, he gives them to understand that it's not their office, but the misuse of their office that is to be avoided, and draws the line how far we are to believe and follow them. Namely, when they teach according to the law, we are to hear them, as Moses in Deuteronomy 17, 11, 12 clearly declares, the priests shall judge according to the law, and then whoever will not hear is to be stoned. But when they without law offer their own doctrine, we shall regard neither their office nor power and abide alone with the law, the scriptures. He's using scriptures and law interchangeably, word of God. The Old Testament scriptures are called the law. Of course the people say that no one writes false things except the scribe. So no one preaches false doctrine except the preachers. And again, as the common saying runs, the learned are the perverted. If then the priests who are placed in their offices by divine order to teach God's law often and most grievously err, what shall our popes, cardinals, and bishops do who are not placed in their offices by God nor man but by themselves? neither preach nor study and produce nothing but human doctrine and their own dreams. Therefore neither their office nor doctrine is any good here. They are nothing but error from head to foot. That is only to be avoided. That is only to be avoided for little of their doctrine and character is subject to controversy. For little of their doctrine and character is subject controversy, for they are not the priests referred to here as we shall hear. But why does Luke say that this single person saw that he was cleansed? Not the others see it too, as all ten were surely cleansed. So the nine, as we have heard, with the, with the priests also praised God and held him in high esteem, so that they would not give their honor to Christ as to creature. Why then does he say that this one only greatly praised God with a loud voice? In the first place, this is said by Luke, according to a general custom, as when one says of the unthankful, he does not see the kindness done him, that is, he will not see it, nor take it to heart, nor think that he ought to be thankful, but acts as though he knew nothing about it, he despises it and disregards it. Thus these nine did not want to see and consider the kindness of Christ, and they despised him as though he did nothing for them. 
On the contrary, he who is thankful will and cannot forget and does not cease to recognize and acknowledge his benefactor and kindness. With such eyes did this Samaritan see his cleansing. On the other hand, the nine also praised God, but with their tongues, and at the same time blasphemed him in Christ. It would not have been punishable if even at that time they had not regarded Christ as God, for he was not yet glorified, as St. John says, 739. And this one also perhaps still held him as a mere man, this person here that came and praised glorified God. But they wanted Christ to be looked upon as a sinful man, and a blasphemer, and to be regarded with the utmost contempt. Such was the poison they brewed into the nine. Christ at that time thought nothing more than that they should receive him as sent to them from God, that they should believe that God dwelt, spoke, and worked in them, in him rather, this they did not wish, and they would not allow others to receive him in this way, but he was to be looked upon as coming from the devil and speaking and working through the devil. And such faith the nine permitted to be driven into them. But this one remained firm in spite of them, that God must be with Christ, who spoke, worked, and dwelt through and in him. Therefore his praise and thanks are mentioned, and the praise of the others is ignored. Through what strife and opposition he remained in his faith we've heard above. It was a great faith that held so firmly to him who was despised, condemned, and blasphemed by the priests, the learned, the rulers, the best, the greatest, and the largest number among all the people. Who dare thus hold Christ at present when the Pope the bishops, doctors, monks, priests, princes, and all their host have condemned him and issued a ball against him, as we see they publicly do. And here this gospel teaches what works tried and experienced faith produces and what is the true worship and honor man may give to God. Some build churches for him, some arrange masses, some ring bells for him. Some light candles for him that he may see and act no differently than as though he were a child who is in need of our gifts and services. Although the building of churches and holding of masses at first arose from the Christians coming together to conduct the true worship. Afterwards, the true worship disappeared and was entirely omitted. Since then, we've continued to cling to charitable foundations, buildings, singing, ringing, lighting, clothing, smoking, and as many more such preparations as there are for worship. We've come to consider such preparations as a chief divine worship and know nothing of any other. And we do wisely as he who builds a house spends all his money on a scaffolding and during his whole life should get no further not even to lay a single stone for the foundation pray tell me where will he dwell at last when the scaffolding is torn down but the true worship is to return and praise God with a loud voice 
This is our greatest work in heaven and on earth. Besides, it's the only worship we may bring to God, for he needs none of the other kind and is not capable for it. He will be only loved and praised by us. Concerning this, Psalm 50, 12, 13, and 14 speaks, quote, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Do you think God would drink the blood of goats or eat the flesh of bulls? Thus he might also say now to the founders of charitable institutions, smokers, singers, ringers, and candlelighters, Do you think that I am blind or deaf, or I have no house for a shelter? You should love and praise me. This is the incense you are to burn to me, and the bells you are to ring for me. The returning means now the returning to bring home again to God the grace and goods received, not to keep them, not to boast of them or exalt yourself above others, or praise. nor to praise yourself on account of them, nor to reap honor thereby, nor wish to be better than others, not to be satisfied with yourself, not to have joy in them, but to have all such joy, pleasure, honor, and praise only in him who has given them. Stand there willing and quite composed when he shall again take them from you, and nonetheless just then to love and praise him. Oh, how few there are who thus return. Of course, scarcely one among ten. One has more beautiful hair than another. He delights in himself because of it above others. What then will he do with the great gifts? of reason, spirit, and so forth. These are the ravens of Noah that flew out of the ark and did not return. To sum up all, to return embraces these two thoughts, not to cling to God's gifts, but only to himself, to God himself who gives them. Thus the great praise of God includes two parts. First is to esteem God highly in your heart and to have a lovely disposition toward him so that we taste and experience how sweet the Lord is, which St. Peter speaks. And Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. All this faith that has been tried teaches and brings us at the end of the conflict. For as long as the strife and conflict endure, faith is in labor, and all is painful and bitter, that it experiences and tastes no sweetness in God. But as soon as the evil hour is past, if we persevere and remain firm, then the sweetness of God will be ours. God will become so lovely, satisfactory, and sweet to the heart, that it will desire nothing more than to battle and to seek to try his faith 
and now, as it were, thirsts and longs for suffering and misfortune, which all the world fears, which he also himself previously feared, of which Psalm 26, 2 speaks. Try me, O Lord, prove me, try my heart and my mind, and so forth. It says in our version, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me, try my reins and my heart. Out of this valiant faith comes quite a different man with a different taste, so that henceforth he does not feel well without suffering, and as it were, lives contrary to all the world, so that he rejoices where the world mourns, and mourns where the world rejoices, until he becomes an enemy of this whole life and becomes eager for death. And this is what St. Paul means when he says in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That is, my joy in life are the suffering and death of the world, and her joy in life are my suffering and death. Therefore, he says again in Philippians 1.23, Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, to this taste and knowledge no hypocrite can come, for conflict and suffering they do not want, and so they must remain faithless and wholly unexperienced in spiritual things. Now we're at the end of this tape. We will begin... Page 94 on the next tape, the other point, or the other part, is to break forth with the voice and to confess before the world what the heart within believes of God, and so forth. <laughs>